0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powadik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. We're recording live today at Real Trends as part of our real estate conference series. Today our guest is a gentleman named Ryan Nelson, who's the Director of Investments at the Pearl Group. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thank you for having me. You forgot to introduce me, but uh, oh I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay uh, with that. I'm okay with yeah. that. No one cares about us. Nobody cares about us. <laughs> yeah, Aaron and Adam, as always. So Ryan, we start these always off with you know what was your background and in, into real estate. How did you get into real estate and how did you end up at the Pro Group?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, it really starts back when I was traveling the world with uh, one of my best buddies, Dave Karens, who incidentally now works as a broker at CB in office leasing. But we were you know we were ripping around the world, and when we got back, this was after uh, undergrad. I didn't have a job and I didn't have money. You know, you're ripping around for eight months, Globally, and so he put me in touch with his dad, who put me in touch with a variety of brokerages, and it seemed like there was a really strong fit at Davison Young. So I ended up working for just under two years with Rob Armstrong, one of the best in the business as far as office leasing goes, and you know learned an enormous amount about leasing, about you know the the world of how to how to do enormous deals consistently. He taught me a lot about you know grace in uh, you know in dealing through negotiations, which is you know an important aspect especially when you're dealing with those big deals. And I'll always remember one of the first things that he put me onto was mapping out the path, the underground path. And that has been arguably one of the more useful things just as I'm navigating getting to buildings and meetings and whatnot. That's been a a good investment of
0: time. (laughs) For anybody uh, not super familiar with Toronto, they're the largest underground mall I guess you call it I think it's, the, world. It's the, it's the largest, largest I think it's the
1: largest consecutive sort of retail square footage in the world yeah. like, I don't know yeah. you can't really call it a mall but you know as yeah. far as just length and Vastness of of retail; it's and, the largest in the world, and, and it is truly a labyrinth. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and, and growing, growing now with the with the SoCo, the South Core expansion. Like, there's parts of the path that I never even knew existed that yeah. you every yeah. once in a while stumble onto. Yeah. So, anyways, um, so uh, yeah. for the logic, it's if, when it's cold and it's negative thirty five degrees in the middle of February. Having that path be able to navigate all the way through from you know you know you can, you can basically go ten kilometers from one side to the other without having to put your head up above ground. Right, exactly. so it's really nice. Yeah, yeah.
2: So. Anyways, it was a great experience at Avison. It taught me a bunch about leasing, and ultimately positioned me well uh, for a shift over to what was formerly Dundee Reit, which became Dream Office, Dream Global, and ultimately Dream Office spun out Seventy Seven. Of its industrial assets into Dream Industrial, and when that took place, I, I moved over in an asset management, you know, analyst role, and was assisting in, in that world with, uh, you know, Randy Cameron and John Todd and whatnot. So a fantastic experience. One of the, I mean, first of all, getting exposure to Michael Cooper, seeing how he thinks, uh, incredibly creative guy. Is uh, it was just a totally priceless experience. But the the thing that really you know was was truly amazing to me was the depth of talent in those organizations, and you know everyone you were dealing with day to day was truly truly you know always had something to learn there. So you know did that again for about two ish years, and then shifted over did an MBA back at, at Ivy, and then had been I, I shifted into a kind of investments asset management role with Hallmark, which is a local Toronto kind of urban developer. You know, adaptive reuse player, and, uh, you know, was, was with them for about three and a half or so years. And just since April, have been working with the Pearl Group and Jordan Pearl, which is a, another family backed organization that's focused on urban real estate, but with a bit wider geographic breadth. Right now, our portfolio, just by way of kind of uh, context, is about. Say 200, 250 million in assets, and it's nearly all in in Toronto. About two thirds retail, like street front, high uh, high street
1: retail. And it's been you know it's been a great transition from Hallmark to Pro Group. Well, they play in the same space a little bit, do they not? So, just, was it kind of a bit contentious moving from one to the other? It wasn't <laughs> was it a total jump. You weren't going from Dream to Hallmark or you know doing your MBA. How did that play itself out? Yeah, I mean, and I, and I ask that just for some listeners that maybe you know navigate those types of tricky transaction or transitions. How did you handle it? it? One of the nice things
2: about the transition was that they have actually co-invested in I think a few deals at this point. So, so there was a really strong relationship between between the two organizations between Jeff Hull and Jordan, and you know the the transition was great. And I, I would say, in, you know, if you're trying to kind of differentiate the two organizations. There's two two aspects to it. One is, you know, what we look at right now is, you know, anything value-add urban across North America, whereas Hallmark, at least when I was there, I was focused on Toronto exclusively.
0: A very downtown Toronto, yeah. specifically. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Super urban, almost. And, and then the other one is with the Pearl Group, you know, we have a tendency to recycle capital as well, right? So Hallmark is a buy and hold for generations, and buy and develop and put in the extra money at the outset to develop those assets with a with a view that you're going to hold them for you know as long as you can. With the Pearl Group being you know value add, we're we're looking to you know turn a dollar into two effectively with the right deals.
0: And how long have you been looking at casting a wider net, geography wise? Because uh, my Knowledge of Pearl Group is historically it was you know similar to Hallmark, very downtown focused. So what, what prompted the shift, or or what caused the, uh, the you know casting of a wider net?
2: Yeah, it definitely predates my time there. You know, I only joined in April, but you know from what I understand, so Jordan joined his family company eleven years ago and has run it for the past five years. And they made their first foray into the U.S. in Chicago about two years ago, looking in the kind of West Loop Fulton Market area. So. Very similar fundamentals in terms of kind of cool gentrifying urban value add, but the thing that becomes you know a little bit overwhelming as you're looking in the U.S. markets is that there's just so much more in the way of opportunity than there is in in Toronto, frankly even in Canada.
1: And is that just because of the vastness of it all? There's just I mean, you would think yeah, it might be ten times as big, but it would be ten times as much capital, so the opportunity would be equal.
2: Yeah, I honestly
1: it might, it
2: might be. A bit out of depth, but like one of the things that I've I've found really interesting, just in kind of comparing, because Chicago and Toronto are really good cities. People love to kind of compare the two. Toronto has about, I think, 80 million square feet in its kind of core in office. Chicago has double that, so about 160. But then if you look at Toronto... Kind of in the GTA context, so you include the airport, you include uh, you know Mississauga, etc. We're about 160, and so there's this breadth to Toronto that is a little bit more focused in in Chicago, that makes it you know their biggest building is five million square feet, ours is maybe one of, you know high high ones type thing with the King and Bay stuff, so. I don't know that I can specifically say, you know, is Toronto more or less competitive than Chicago? But I would say anecdotally, when we're looking at deals, there's a lot more wiggle room. There's a lot more opportunity to push in negotiations. Is that, um, is that better
0: yield available down there?
2: Absolutely. That's part of the reason why we're looking. You know, this is a like,
0: Canadian podcast, so we're going to edit that part. I think.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, like you take the allied portfolio, you know, just priceless brick and beam assets in downtown Toronto. These things are, you know, you got to think more than five, maybe $600 a foot these days. in, in Toronto you, you're you're looking at the exact same quality of product below well below replacement cost in Chicago is maybe 250 260 type thing you look you, you walk through these and it's just spectacular right like beautiful high ceilings exactly what you're kind of coached to look for when you're thinking about what is cool tech space and and you know it, it frankly just doesn't exist here in a way that is it is marketable and it, there's this dearth of it out there that you know you can get at a kind of 6 to 7 cap that
0: is just wild right In addition to, obviously, you'll get a little bit of yield down there, is part of it a risk-mitigant strategy, the idea that you're in multiple markets, you're not at the whims of a single market? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Toronto's been on a tear. And so you can really craft a good narrative around, you know, it's been a great time to be heavy in Toronto. And a lot of people are crafting a narrative around the idea that Toronto is a lot lot more runway before it starts to hit pricing comparable to the major cities, you know, New York, London, Paris, et cetera again I'm out of depth and you know whether that's true or not but you know absolutely to the extent that you can diversify by geography and even by use is absolutely an aspect of how we're thinking about deploying money yeah
0: Are you looking in Canada at all in the markets here
2: We are yeah and we're very active in Toronto but you know a series of recent transactions that I think are still not public have really led us to believe the pricing is unbelievable and you know, you, I'm sure there have been people who've said that five years ago and ten years ago, respectively. But uh, the crash is coming. The crash is coming. We're yeah, saying that for a decade now, exactly. But the relativity when, when all of a sudden you open the breadth of what you're looking at to many more markets, you can start to see, you know, similar arguments to how you know some of the, the major institutional global players like BlackRock might be, might be looking at things where they say, well, you know, it's quite cheap in this. We're you know we're doing a meta play on industrial in you know in Canada with Pirate or a meta. MetaPlay, you know, most recently, I guess they just, you know, closed on Dream Global, right? They just bought Dream Global, so MetaPlay in Europe and Germany, Amsterdam, etc. But, you know, when you're so focused in Toronto, it's a little bit more challenging at best you can diversify uh, by use, right?
0: I mean, going to the Marcus, do you just take the, the same viewpoint that you look at in Toronto and just transplant that to the same strategy and metrics and goals, or is it I you have to rework your model?
1: Well, part of it is just familiarity with neighborhoods too, right? I mean, if you're from Toronto and you've spent your time with, you know, focused on real estate in Toronto, you kind of know... Where the cool areas are, where the trendy places are going to be, like you can kind of feel the growth, right? But if you're not from Chicago, might you, can you get fooled at times? Say, oh, this is the perfect building and an up-and-coming neighborhood, and you know it's got all the attributes you want, and then lo and behold, it doesn't turn out that way. Like, how do you how do you mitigate? How do you protect yourself against that? I think just asking
2: the question is a really important step. Recognizing that even though these cities feel somewhat similar in terms of their scale and scope, in terms of transit, in terms of you know proximity to the water, et cetera but the fact of the matter is that as we dug deeper in a number of our uh, due diligence kind of investigations as we were tying up properties you know there were, there were things that came up that humble you as you remind yourself How little you know about that market. Not only you know, you know, uh, geographically speaking, you know where is it located, and what are the nuances of would I go in my you know nineteen-year-old self? Would I be going out to bars in this area? But you know, even more kind of you know, in in the case of Chicago as an example, something that came up that was you know absolutely fascinating was that they have this rolling realty tax reappraisal system, and downtown Chicago is set to be reappraised in 2021. Incidentally, there's a new commissioner, head that uh, that is effectively instituting a brand new. Way to deal with realty taxes, and as we've kind of peeled back the layers, it seemed to result in increases that were anywhere in the neighborhood of kind of like you know fifty to two hundred percent, depending on the area, depending on the asset. So, this in a market where many of the office leases are semi-gross, and you know to a certain extent you can pass it back through to your tenants, but when you renew them, you can't. You have to be very cautious about you know how does that how does that not only impact your bottom line, but should you decide. To pass these through to your tenants, are they going to be able to pay them too? Right, these are not insignificant increases. Mm-hmm.
0: So, t- um, tenants only care about all-in rates, and that's what they're going to view it as. Exactly, you know? and
2: and you know anyway. So it was a really jarring experience that you know you, just by asking the question, you know, what are we not looking at? Invariably, it turns into an onion of potential things that come up. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: Have you looked at any markets in the U.S. or Canada and just said no thanks after doing a little research?
2: So <laughs> be honest, it's okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
2: one of the first, you know, uh, it was incredibly eye-opening. You know, all of a sudden being exposed to all of these new markets, whether you know it was U.S. or frankly even coming from Hallmark, where it was just very Toronto-centric, even just across Canada. One of the things that we've started to do is um, basically run analysis across a variety of sets of data to basically try to sort out which are the which are the best. Markets in the US from a fundamental standpoint, from a tech standpoint, from a momentum standpoint, and from a talent standpoint. You know, you read a lot of articles about GDP uh, is, you know, is or is not correlated with price, is GMP, is tech talent, is tech, uh, you know, uh, tech job growth, is tech degrees, like all of these kind of factors in some way are alluded to in the context of real estate as having an impact on price. And we ran, you know, we ran models to look at that and to basically figure out which are the best cities on an absolute basis but then which are the best priced cities which are the ones that are showing a really strong strong no, almost, story. almost disconnect and a disconnect, exactly. And what we found was that really helped to narrow our focus on about five cities that we feel not only have great fundamentals but are positioning themselves for for growth in the future. And now, when you kind of tie that back into Canada, because of course we we looked at the the Canadian cities as well. You know, Toronto continues to have a very compelling story, but increasingly, you know, pricing is is part of the equation too. Yeah, so it's been really. Eye-opening to kind of to look at North America more broadly, and it's really also I think great from a Canadian perspective, whether it's Vancouver, Montreal, etc. There's a lot of very good stories here as well, even in the context of looking at everything. So you've been traveling a lot, a little bit, yeah. But uh, you know, like it's early days. Like you know, joined in April, and so we're 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 just you know we're taking it one step at a time. We're we're still a
1: you know, a, a young and growing organization and have ambitions to, uh, yeah, to get is this, out there. Is the strategy, so do you have, you know, permanent employees in Chicago now? Is that, if you've identified, is that one of your cities, one of your target cities? Do you have people that are kind of, and we, this theme comes up regularly from guests and we say it too, even at First National, is boots on the ground are so critical, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah, I, one of my favorite business models uh, for going into a new market is Oxford's. Right, they go in, they say, "Hey, well, we want to be in Paris," and so they find the best of breed operator. They partner with them on some major, you know, as a stabilized asset or development or whatever. They they sit and they watch for a series of years how the you know how the market works. What are the nuances to it? Who are the players? How do you ultimately do it yourself? And then all of a sudden, you know. Maybe three to five years later, you see them push an enormous sum of capital in on their own, and that model is—it's brilliant. You know, we're we're still you know, far cry from the size of Oxford, but uh,
0: everybody but, is. It's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, but at worry. the
2: same time, you know, like the the, the strategy. Makes an enormous amount of sense. And to, you know, I think that to have the humility to know when you are out of depth and to find partners to help help you kind of buffet that knowledge is an incredibly important.
1: Um, how do you aspect, go about finding about the it. right people, though? I mean, I would even have that, like, I guess you got to go and ask around, go to events, find people that you can go trust, to, go to conferences like this. Go, I guess yes. so. Yeah. <laughs> and say, Who's, who is the best? Yeah. Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I you know, when you go to the city physically, you know, you can. You can get a sense of where the where the momentum is, and you speak to ten brokers, and they they'll tell you a variety of stories that like you know collate into uh, into a nice perspective on you know what are the one or two markets that you want to be in, and from there you know generally you know it will give you an example. We've been you know looking in Los Angeles in a, in an area and kind of in around downtown, and. There are only a handful of players there. In the same way that you know if you go into downtown Western Toronto, there are only hand, you know, a handful of kind of bigger players kind of taking a more institutional or value-add tact. And so once you narrow the scope of the geography to a certain degree, you do the same basically and almost inadvertently with the, with
1: the players. And, and
2: at that point, it's a bit you know, easier to sift through who you want to be reaching out to.
1: You know, one of the things that always comes to my mind driving around Toronto or other cities um, when looking at looking at sort of street front retail or what do we call it, sort of high street retail, it's, you know, sometimes it may not be a cash flow play. It might be a, like a land play and there's always talk about land assembly and I don't, I, I'm not familiar if, you know, you, your group is into development. But how do you make that assessment, right? I mean, in Toronto particularly, you might be looking at something at a three cap or a two and a half cap, I don't know, you tell me. And it may not make sense from a yield perspective, but, you know, if you're, thinking about future development or you know that's the corner and if you own that corner at some point and someone's going to come around and pay you an astronomical amount for it just so that they can develop. How do you go about that sort of algorithm in your head?
2: I guess my perspective on that would be, you know, fundamentals are fundamentals for a reason. And when you start to rationalize an investment on the basis of a new idea, so, hey, you know, I'm going to take the greater of land value appreciating at 5% or cash flow discounted in my terminal year, it's, you know, the biggest thing that you want to be thinking about, in my opinion at least, is is optionality, right? Like if you take something off the table and you're only buying it because you're going to have capital appreciation that rationalizes a two cap, that to me is taking an important aspect of the strategy off the table that, you know, that would allow you to vend it out, you know, earlier on, and ultimately is quite limiting to the extent that you know we're in these kind of like you know historically low interest rate environments. It's you know more probable than not that cap rates are coming up and capital appreciation is not going to be relied on in the same way that it has in the past. And so location, absolutely, you know, is paramount. And if you buy a great location, that's fantastic. But one of our focal points is just making sure that 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 price that we get in at. Is the right price, and we're not gonna we're not gonna rationalize it away by saying you know well it doesn't make sense from a yield perspective, but it does make you know sense on a on a you know a long term IRR perspective with you know historically high rental rates, historically low cap rates, historically low vacancy. Like you start to get into muddy water,
0: I think, when you, you're
1: making more assumptions
0: and aggressive assumptions too. Tougher to support. They try to buy tomorrow's price and just wait for tomorrow to arrive so you bought at the right price is uh, been an ongoing strategy you've seen in this market for sure. Over the
1: years, Adam's told the story of his land acquisition and that's the exact story. <laughs> Won't go there. If you've if you listened enough to the podcast, you'll know the story. Well, episode
0: one. <laughs> so you can find it in our archives if you really want to hear about my uh, foray into And then the, you can listen to the
1: next 70 in a row. <laughs> yeah. And you'll, you'll hate Adam and I by the end of it. <laughs> well, that's it. And sorry, let me go back to one thing. you yeah, you just be more for just explaining what it is you'd mentioned discounting your cash flow in your terminal year. Can you just explain what you meant by that, just for those that maybe not, not be familiar with that concept?
2: Yeah, sure. So you, know, you have a projection of what your income statement is for a given property, revenues, costs, and uh, the resulting net income. And at a certain point, you have to make an assumption that you might sell this property. Whenever that happens to be, maybe your intent is to develop it in two years, in which case you would take your net income in that year and use what you estimate to be the cap rate to To evaluate what you're going to sell, at, the price that you're going to sell it at, uh, in a lot of cases, you're also looking at it from the perspective of what if I held it for ten years or fifteen years or whatever the case was, and in that case, guessing what the cap rate is going to be in ten years or in fifteen years is an incredibly challenging thing. Many people, you know, say that the right Way to deal with that is just to add a um, you know fifty basis point, twenty five basis point, whatever fifty. Yeah, <laughs> add, add some amount to the cap rate today to factor in for the risk of time. But you know, basically, what I was alluding to in, in previously was you know fifty basis. That's just, that's just an enormous assumption. And when you're anchoring it on four caps, or when you're anchoring it on three caps, like historically low cap rates in this market, your sensitivity is greater. And it's also like it's also important to note that cap rates do not affect value in a linear way. Right? It is in a kind of expansion or. Contractionary way is so it's a curved line, right? So the the difference in value between a 4.2 cap, 4.25 and 4.5 cap, and 4.5 and 4.75, those are not the same values. Those are actually expanding. So as we come down off of four caps, it's going to be
1: to, to come towards, down or go up. It's gonna, on, yeah. yeah. Values ramped
2: up very quickly yeah. as we went to four caps, and they're gonna ramp back down very quickly when inevitably the period arises where four caps are you know no, no longer relevant,
0: right? And if you're messing around with, you know, IRR calculations, yeah, your terminal value you can really move the dial quite a lot. You can justify a purchase by just moving your your terminal cap rate a couple of you know ten fifteen. Twenty beeps like that can really move the dial in your IRR. So it's uh, exactly uh, it's it,
2: it's also important, I guess, just to pair off. You know, what are our goals? What are we trying to achieve? Because there are groups out there that we've seen historically that have come into our market that were who operate here currently. We're local who have different investment parameters, right? If we might be concerned about IRR and yield, they might be you know concerned about capital preservation. So if that's your major goal. It doesn't matter if it's a two cap. You care about getting the right asset, getting it in the right location, and getting it out of whatever market it's in right now.
1: Yeah. Or and, you know, Achilles is a good example. They're comparing to their yields they're getting in Europe, which was you know one or two percent. So coming here and getting a three percent or four percent yield is amazing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's, sometimes it's not just you know preservation of capital; it's just a comparison Relativity. point, right? Relativity, yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely.
0: So I know Pro Group owns quite a bit of uh, a retail, but a specific type of real estate, which type, which is downtown. Great addresses. Yeah. So it is
2: is, marquee. uh, Yeah. So
0: I'd love to hear your opinion on how you think that retail is going to perform to just the general retail market as a whole in Canada
2: yeah I uh, <laughs> this is a bit like the question of predicting uh, interest rates to a certain extent where it's incredibly challenging you know I, I I won't pretend that I know the future but I will borrow one of the anecdotes that that uh, from Jordan Pearl the head of our company that he says you know you walk down Queen Street which is where a handful of our uh, King Street for that matter where a handful of our assets are King West Queen West there are people there all the time and so if there's a question and frankly you know vacancy is pretty low you know there are very few. Storefronts that are that are boarded up or whatever the case is, and you know if you go there on a Saturday in the middle of the day, it's it's rammed, right? And you've got a whole you know gentrified neighborhood of you know uh, all sorts of de- demographics, young families, etc. You know, so there may be a situation where rent. Has gotten ahead of the fundamentals of the market, and if that's true, rent needs to come down. There's a lot of there's a lot of vacancy in Yorkville, as an example, right now, and that's our you know that's our premier that's our premier location,
0: premier location in the country, in the yeah. country. And, yeah.
2: to, and to say you know like is retail in Yorkville dead? I think is 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 not necessarily the right question. It's just has, has rent escalated to the point where retailers are having a tougher time.
1: Surviving do you there. need? Do you just need more international retailers rather than local? Is that is that the transition that's occurring, particularly in Yorkville? From what you know, I've seen again, fairly minimalist perspective, but it
2: is not necessarily international brands. It's it's how a lot of these brands are um, conveying themselves, right? Like how many channels are they in? How many? What is the u- <laughs> the ubiquity of the brand? You know, to take uh, to take an example, there's Hermes who does spectacularly well because he you really can't get it anywhere else. Whereas you know, you take
0: these winners in there. Yeah, you can go to other winners. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, exactly. You go to any uh, any number of these other other retailers, and you can get it online. You can see it on Instagram. You can see it. Da-da-da. You can you can get it kind of almost anywhere. And so then to turn around, there's and, a giant Nike store, which would be a perfect example. Yeah, or you can buy
1: Nike at Winners. Yeah, <laughs> <for that matter. laughs> or order it online, or you know, yeah. like
2: so. Uh, the more I guess ubiquitous the brand, the less you need a showpiece on. Yorkville, or or you know in, in and and at the same time it seems like a lot of retailers are now looking at these the historical perspective of well this is a brand statement so it can operate a loss and they're reevaluating that because these locations shouldn't be operating at a loss, and if rent has escalated to the point where it it has dislocated from that fundamental, where these where these brands can't operate profitably, maybe it needs to come down. But that's not to, like how much density is gonna is gonna be brought online from you know major major players in Yorkville in the next five to ten years. Like that that neighborhood's absolutely trending upwards. It's just you know there may yeah, would, there may be a hiccup in rent. We were just reading about
1: Italy. Is that how you say it? Is it just pronounced Italy, which is this giant maybe you know more about it, but I'm just I'm just just learning it's a you know, it's I don't know how many square feet, but I think it's a hundred thousand square feet of five different restaurants yeah. and all sorts of stuff. And it's it's a chain when they're they're coming right to the Bay and Young, I yeah, believe. Right? Bay and, yeah. Bay and yeah. yeah. So and that's that's gonna attract a ton of people. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So I mean we're we're bouncing around it, but maybe just talk about what your thoughts are on retail and where retail is going in the future. Because yeah. everybody says retail is dead, but that, that's not true. But it just it's it's evolving, it's
2: adapting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, there there's a few stats that I've come across that have really been really been telling. The number, the first one is, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of what is it? I think it's thirty six square feet of retail per capita in the U S. There's 24, 25 in Canada. And then the next biggest market is somewhere in Europe. I think it might be Paris at like five or something like that. So what you have just fundamentally is in the US an enormous kind of overstoring and this has been a you know a trend that you know you listen to any, reit quarterly or annual uh, annual report, and they'll be talking about the fact that you know there there is a kind of a shift in retail that is ultimately going to lead to the death of a lot of these C and D malls. And you would think from the same standpoint, Canada, you know, will have to have to think carefully. But the other stat that kind of runs counter to that to that that I just find amazing is right now. Amazon represents about 10% of the total retail spend in the U.S. And in Canada, it's about 3%. And it's been stubbornly consistent in Canada. So the idea that people are, at least in Canada, are, are totally replacing their retail spend with online, it's a story that probably still has runway for growth. But, you know, there should be some questioning of the logic of that, you know, taken to its conclusion of retail will eat retail or uh, e-commerce will eat retail entirely. I think we need to be very cautious about that. There's a, there's another study that said that about 75% of people still enjoy the experience of going into retail. And if I just think about my life, like, you know, I live in Lee Side. I, you know, we love to just kind of walk down, walk, get outside the house. And one of the nice things, we've got a 15-month son. One of the nice things is a pub in the stroller and just walk around, maybe go down to, you know, uh, Bayview or whatever. It's a great experience. And I don't think that's going anywhere. And it's not stopping us. From you know going out and you know we we subscribe and save on Amazon. We use Fresh City Farms for our you know produce and like we're very kind of avid online shoppers. But that's not taking away from the the compelling side of retail that will always like frankly always be there. It's just in in what balance relative to where we are today.
0: Hey Ryan, I, I love that take on uh, you know on e commerce not eating the, I guess, regular commerce uh, world. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing uh, sharing all your, your insights. It was much appreciated. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. We want to thank uh, First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Informa for having us here at the Real Trends Conference. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening
2: to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as
0: financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP Holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.